Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And today we're talking about a topic that I know you have seen everywhere on the news, on 60 Minutes, in the New York Times, in your local newspapers. Everyone is talking about and aware of the mental health crisis and particularly what is happening in our emergency rooms. So today I have two guests, a pediatric emergency room physician and a child psychiatrist who consults in the emergency room and really wanted to have an opportunity to hear what they're experiencing, but also some ideas about what to do to remedy the situation because it's a mess. My first guest is Dr. Ben Bierman. Dr. Bierman is a child and adolescent psychiatrist on faculty at the University of Michigan Medical School. His clinical work focuses mainly on hospital-based care, psychiatric emergency services, psychiatric inpatient, consult liaison, and ECT treatments. He served as the medical director of the Child and Adolescent Inpatient Service for nine years until 2017, before devoting most of his clinical time to the psychiatric emergency services. Dr. Bierman's clinical and scholarly focus has been on adolescents with mood disorders and disruptive behaviors, treatment-resistant depression, and youth in crisis. He also has an interest in substance use disorders and dual diagnoses. Dr. Lois Lee is a return guest, having spoken to us about gun violence. Dr. Lois Lee's work focuses on pediatric emergency medicine, health disparities, injuries, and health policies. This is grounded in her clinical work as a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Boston Children's Hospital and associate professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. At Boston Children's Hospital, she is the Associate Program Director for Public Policy at the new Sandra Fenwick Institute for Pediatric Health Equity and Inclusion. She received her MD at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and completed her residency in pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and her Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. During that time, she also received her MPH at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Lee has published seminal research on pediatric emergency medicine, health disparities, and injury prevention. With her expertise, she holds national positions in the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Pediatric Emergency Medicine and the Council on Injury, Violence, and Poison Prevention. Please join me in welcoming these wonderful and brilliant clinicians. Hey, Lois. Hey, Ben. How are you guys? Doing well. Thank you. Doing well. Good. Glad to have you. Well, listen, I think that this topic is very timely. I just was watching 60 Minutes last night, and there was a whole segment on, you know, the mental health crisis in kids. And I was thinking to myself that, this crisis has been here for a long time. It's just gotten worse. And I think there's so much attention on it. And so I think this is a perfect time to talk about some of this. So before we dive into talking about emergency rooms and mental health crises, I thought we'd just start really briefly, just a little bit of background about you and kind of why you've gotten into, you know, the emergency room mental health sphere. So Lois, I'll start with you. Uh, Wonderful. So I am a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Boston Children's Hospital, which is a uh, tertiary or even quaternary care hospital um, in Boston, Massachusetts. Although we do serve our local community, uh, which is an urban, you know, community, as well as being a referral center. We actually see children with mental health crises, not only from our local Boston neighborhoods, uh, but actually from throughout Massachusetts and even New England, particularly from New Hampshire, as those 
kids have less access in the more rural areas as there are very few, you know, children's hospitals um, for those patients to access. I became interested in this space about five years ago, actually, as one of my mentees, uh, she was a fellow, noticed during her residency that we were starting to have more and more children boarding. So this is not a COVID-induced problem. We've been seeing this for some time, um, and it led to doing a couple of studies just based on our experiences in our Boston Emergency Department about boarding for our mental health patients who need a higher level of care. Well, thank you. And I agree. I know you said this, you've been doing this for five years. So again, this is something that's been going on for a while. How about you, Ben? Tell us a little bit about you. Yeah. So I'm a faculty at the University of Michigan, um, and we're also a a tertiary quaternary center. Um, It's a training center. So we have a very busy active residency program, and um, I'm affiliated with the medical school. So you know, I get to work with medical students, with uh, general psychiatric residents and um, child psychiatry residents. You know, we also serve, you know, not only the Ann Arbor area, but the entire state. We're sort of the go-to. Um, and as a center with expertise in child psychiatry, a lot of people tend to refer to us and send, you know, kids and adolescents our way. We also have a general pediatric emergency room which sees kids not only with medical issues, but with mental health and psychiatric issues. And so between the two, we try to manage this this population. I got into this work. When I went to medical school, I was pretty sure I would do psychiatry. I was always, I was an undergrad psychology major and considered clinical psychology and was always fascinated with mental health topics. You know, why do people get depressed? What happens to the brain? How do people develop schizophrenia? Why do people do the things they do and, you know, the behaviors and so on? And so I was pretty set on psychiatry. Um, And I also really looked at the advocacy component. You know, I could never understand why there was such a stigma uh, for people with psychiatric disorders and mental health issues. And, you know, why did that exist? And what could I do to sort of address that? And the child psychiatry, you know, I just wanted to be able to see patients across the lifespan. And child psychiatry is very much its own specialty. And I figured, you know, I needed to have that expertise to see the youngest kids. And um, I'm especially interested in adolescence, you know, that transition age. Um, It's a very challenging population, but also a very rewarding population. So um, I've done a number of clinical things. I had a pretty busy outpatient practice outside a residency and then decided to move back to Michigan and get into academics. And I was the medical director of our inpatient service for nine years. And then, you know, I would see these kids being referred to us from the emergency room. And we really needed some child expertise down there to help with triage and disposition. And so I was just sort of naturally drawn to that area. And so that's where I've been the past few years, primarily in the ER. Anyone listening to this is going to think that you are the envy of every emergency room, you know, having child psychiatry access. And we'll talk a little bit about that in an emergency room is, is golden and it doesn't happen often enough, but thank you. I, I thank you both for the work you're doing. This is you know, it's so needed. And, you know, as we were talking at the opening that, you know, this has been a problem for a long time. Kids, you know, when there's an emergency crisis, I I don't know if it's confusion or they just don't know where to go. As a primary care person, we get a lot of phone calls, but a lot of kids find their way into the system through the emergency room. So, you know, what, what's that look like from an emergency doc? you know, your perspective, Lois, kind of like, what's, what's the impact looking like right now? Well, for us, we have a large emergency department, we have about 50 beds, but on any given day, we are boarding 20 to maybe even 30 kids. Um, Some of them are there for up to a week. And in our inpatient hospital, we are boarding another 20 or more. And this is in addition to the fact we actually have an inpatient psychiatric unit in our hospital. And also our hospital has a community-based acute care treatment center, a CBAT uh, unit as well. But despite having those inpatient resources and CBAT resources, we still are boarding all these kids. 
And for me and for my colleagues around the country, it's this is unprecedented. You know, I've been doing this for over 20 years and I've never seen the true despair and suffering that our, our children are going through right now. COVID definitely exacerbated a problem, as I mentioned, that we've been seeing before COVID. A friend of mine termed this as existential despair. We feel like that these kids are going through after the complete social upheaval and all the uncertainty of the world. And they're, they're really uh, suffering in ways that Dr. Bierman sees even more acutely you know, than, than I do. And they're, they're not safe to go home because they really, even at very young ages, have thought very hard about how they would kill themselves by suicide. Yeah, yeah. I know on the um, 60 Minutes last night, so that would have been uh, Mother's Day, there was a story in this young kid, I think he was nine when he told his mom, and he said, I just didn't want to wake up. I didn't want to think about this. And this is a nine-year-old. So it seems like younger and younger. Ben, what what's the perspective from a child psychiatrist view? Yeah, I mean, I, I concur with, with everything that Lois said. You know, you mentioned you know, earlier, Leah, when we were talking prior to the podcast that um, this problem, you know, we're, it, the pandemic is sort of highlighting a problem that already existed. And there's no doubt that it has exacerbated and made things worse. You know, when you think about the life of a child or an adolescent, two years out of their life without daily contact with their peers, without activities at school, you know, sports and theater and band and art club and student council and all the things that kids do besides school were sort of stripped away. And, you know, this is a critical developmental age. So I think kids are really sort of lost trying to find their way and, you know, learning how to socialize with one another. And I think it especially impacts kids who are otherwise on the fringe. So kids who have difficulty forming friendships and who need activities and who need daily contact, you know, going back to school was a challenge for many of those kids. So, you know, the stressors are very real. We also board a lot of kids who we're trying to find beds for. So just because we're a psychiatric facility, you know, the the beds are limited, the resources are limited. And I think as a child psychiatrist, the statement you made, Dr. Lee, was you know, some of these kids are not safe to go home. And I think that's where the child psychiatry comes in. A child psychiatrist can really help make that distinction. There may be a number of kids who really are okay to go home. And I think as a generalist, as a pediatrician, as an ER doc, it's it's really difficult to kind of make that call. I mean, I think they call on our expertise to be the one who sort of this child can go home, this family can go home, this is a kid who really does need admission, and just sort of do some of that more, you know, refined, you know, kind of having that wisdom and expertise to make that judgment call. So I I find myself discharging as many kids from the ER as I do advocating for admission. It's interesting you were saying that because, you know, I'm in a, a community hospital system, we have one inpatient psych unit for kids that's about 12 beds in our community. So we have to send kids at least, you know, an hour away if we can find a bed in the state. And so, you know, kids are going to Indiana from Michigan because there are no beds. And then there are remote areas in the state, like in the Upper Peninsula, where there's nothing. So they're coming downstate. And I was thinking, Ben, you were saying, so, you know, like in my experience as primary care, we'd have kids that would come in and it used to be, if they said anything about suicide, I whisked them away to the emergency room. And then I think as the field of suicidality or suicide, what do they call it? Suicidology, um, that field has expanded and kind of developed that we began to do more like risk assessment and safety planning. And then we brought social work into our practices. And I say so many times on the podcast, if there's any way primary care can figure that out to have mental health in their practices, it's a game changer. But for those kids, you know, they would go to the emergency room or they would come from home having made, you know, an attempt. It seems like about 75% of them would go home because we just don't have anything. Now that is being seen by an ER physician, adult ER. We don't have a designated peds ER and a social worker. 
so most were going home and then it's just, you know, they come back to me. It's, it, I sort of refer to it sometimes as a kick the can and, you know, so round and round they go. So Lois, let's just talk a little bit about what does the workflow look like and maybe define boarding in case there's listeners that don't know what that means. So I'm a parent. I have a 15 year old. She's been cutting. Um, you know, she maybe took six Tylenol. What's the workflow look like for that kid in your setting? Right. And I think to emphasize my setting, I'm very lucky to be very well resourced. So my job really is just to make sure that there's no medical concerns uh, for our patients. And then we have a very robust mental health team. Uh, The initial uh, intake is done with licensed social workers or mental health social workers who are focused on emergency care, as well as the child psychiatrist. And all of the evaluations are, again, all the supervision is done with our child psychiatry uh, faculty at Boston Children's Hospital. And so I'll do the initial medical assessment or the, you know, uh, we'll precept the trainee doing it. Then we um, consult our mental health team who will then do the evaluation um, for for, uh, the acute complaint for why the patient came into the emergency department and then determine the safety assessment. So Uh, I'm actually very relieved that I'm not the one that has to make those decisions. Um, I'm, you know, I have no formal training in it, although I have more than 20 years of experience. But you do have to ask a lot of specific questions in, in you know, a specific way to make sure you get the proper information. What I can say is I have been very surprised over time with how forthright these kids are. And if you ask them, you know, um, do you have thoughts of killing yourself? Do you have thoughts of how you would kill yourself? They often will tell you, and they will tell you about the attempts that they've never told anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I actually did overdose on some, some uh, you know, pills, melatonin, you know, a few weeks ago, but I didn't tell anybody, right? And then I'm the first person that they're telling um, because something else alerted them and got them into our mm-hmm. system. So that's our process. Mm-hmm. And then my conversation, if I'm suspicious that the child will have to stay for a prolonged period um, or boarding. And so technically, the definition of boarding by the Joint Commission is over four hours. The truth is, if you look in the medical literature, it really ranges. And I'm more familiar with the emergency medicine literature. I actually not quite sure what the psychiatry literature would say, but really for us, anything over 12 to 24 hours, you'll see definitions of boarding. So I'll tell families that they will likely need to be in the hospital uh, waiting for a higher level of psychiatric care, which is either inpatient or CBAP placement but they could be in the hospital for up to a week or two, potentially. And that might even possibly be for several days in the emergency department, but that we really make every effort if the child is continuing to board to move them upstairs to our general pediatrics unit, which is just more equipped for, you know, children staying for a longer period of time. So, you know, again, you guys are so lucky that you have these really well-resourced ERs, you know, so if we were lucky enough to have you, what would the role of the child psychiatrist be? So Lois has a kiddo in the ER. She calls you, you come down. What's that look like then? How do you support her? We do that very thing. So I can talk about what we do. So, you know, the first stage is always medical clearance. So, you know, if a child shows up specifically at our psychiatric emergency room, and I saw a kid last week that had taken about 20 of his antidepressant. So, you know, Uh, My question initially is, do I need to send this kid to the children's ER to be medically cleared? Or can I get a set of vitals, maybe get some labs done here and and keep them in our setting so we can take care of both the medical clearance and the ER clearance? And of course, you know, we would get an acetaminophen level and a salicylate level, you know, because those are the most dangerous things I'm concerned about, not the antidepressant. I want to know if they took something else. And if that's okay, then we would just keep them with us. If, if there was a medical concern, we would send them to the medical ER. But we, our job really, I think we do a very good job of talking about the severity of suicide attempts and the planning and the methods and the means and what specifically did you do. We often forget to ask what was going on at the time? What led to this suicide attempt? What stressors are you dealing with? What's going on at school? What's going on in your family? Um, what's going on with your friends? Because that can often be the point of intervention. 
And so, you know, I think even these kids that end up, we'd make the decision we're going to admit them and they end up staying with us for a few days. I think it's important to continue to assess risk level on an ongoing basis. So the risk level that you have today may be completely different on Wednesday. And you may have reconstituted, you may have had a conversation with your parents, you may have learned that you really didn't fail the exam you thought you failed. So things can change and making that decision to admit a patient is a fluid one. So sometimes very same kid that's boarding may be able to go home after two or three days as opposed to a week. And I think really that's where my expertise as a child psychiatrist comes into play is what is the risk assessment now? What is it going to look like later on? Can we initiate some treatment in the emergency room and start them on some medication or, you know, call and uh, get their therapist involved while they're here, talk on the phone. So um, there's a number of things we can do to mitigate risk and to get some other options in play besides being stuck with them and having to admit them. I love that what you were talking about in terms of initiating treatment, because, and again, I'm only speaking from a community setting where we don't have, you know, psychiatry is that oftentimes, and again, I I don't mean to speak for every emergency room doc by any means, but I think oftentimes there's a reluctance to start therapy. I mean, if you've got a really aggressive kid, you know, that they you know, with doing some de-escalation, that's just not going well. And so they may do I am Zyprexa or something, which honestly feels like big guns for, from a, for me, it does. But in terms of initiating other treatment, not only medication treatment, but that sort of talk therapy that you could actually do a brief intervention that, that just doesn't happen. And, and Lois, I was going to ask you too, I know you've been working on a statement for the AAP just about these mental health emergencies. So you've been thinking not just about your level of of institution, but all these other places, especially really remote. So thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is a joint, uh, we wrote a technical report, which is kind of like the lit review, as well as a policy statement, which provides some guidance for emergency management for children with emergency uh, acute mental health crises. And it's a joint statement actually between the AAP, the American College of Emergency Physicians, and the Emergency Nurses Association. And we're hoping that will get published later this year. And so, you know, I think best practices like Dr. Bierman recommended, and, and these are things we do at our hospital, we reassess risk every day because we agree that, you know, a child coming in crisis one day will be different several days later. And maybe that trigger has passed and they, they can contract for safety and go home. And then starting to put in schedules, you know, these are things we didn't have to do when kids were boarding for maybe one to three days. But now that we're seeing them for longer and they are actually under a different kind of stress being in the emergency department in a windowless room where they can't go outside and can't engage and they can't have their electronics, right? (laughs) Certainly not helping their condition. So we have started some medication initiation as well as doing some group therapy sessions, which we were able to do actually virtually with iPads for certain patients. And again, these weren't things we were doing, but we've initiated in, in the last year. So our technical report and policy statement really focusing on how we can better serve our kids. And then also through EMSC, which is the Emergency Medicine Services for Children, um, they found the EIIC, which is the Emergency of Innovation, oh, and something center, but they basically have also a toolkit to help uh, emergency departments because like the patients you're talking about, Leah, most kids are not seen in tertiary care children's hospitals, right? So how do we try to provide more equitable care for all children? And so trying to provide guidance for kids going to community hospitals or who may not even have access to that to try to improve their care. Yeah, I think those risks of, of suicide are particularly high in our rural areas. I think actually where some of the rates were going down, like uh, particularly in black males, um, young males and younger and younger. So those pop, and of course, Native American um, populations, it's just huge. So, and a lot of those places are underserved. So, so let's get creative. I mean, what are, what are some of the other options that we could be looking at? One, I, I just saw, again, it was on 60 Minutes, was a program in Wisconsin where they have a freestanding 
essentially a mental health urgent care from three to 9 PM, seven days a week. And, you know, it's just a walk-in and I thought, gosh, wouldn't that be great? So what other sort of innovative things are out there? Um, how about you, Ben? Yeah. I mean, I, I would follow up on the, I would agree about the urgent care model. You know, if I'm at home and I, you know, I'm doing yard work and I cut my finger and I need three sutures put in, I'm not going to go to an emergency room. I'm going to go to an urgent care center, you know, get the sutures put in, get the wound clean and get an antibiotic and go home. And we don't have that model for a kid in crisis who is feeling out of control, wants to cut themselves, wants to hurt themselves, doesn't necessarily need a psychiatric admission, but needs someone to talk to, you know, it's after hours. We need a place where people can go for several hours, decompress, stay overnight if they need to. And I know of at least one center, uh, I trained at the University of Pittsburgh and one of my colleagues, like a sub ER setting. So they have the psychiatric emergency room for the psychotic patients, for the dangerously suicidal patients, for the patients that need admission. But then they have the, like an urgent care model where people can come, hang out, talk to a social worker, you know, get some support. Maybe I'll bump up your antidepressant dose, you know, from 10 to 20 milligrams and just sort of do some crisis management at a place that's more comfortable. It's not the emergency center. There's not the level of acuity Um, because psychiatric emergency rooms can be pretty intense places. You know, there are people in crisis and people who are psychotic and people who are manic and people who are aggressive. And it's not a very calm setting in which to recover and reconstitute. So I think that level of care is desperately needed. I also think we need to look outside of the role of physicians and look at other staff. So social work staff in emergency rooms can really do a great job of not only working with patients, but working with families, mitigating crises. And so I think we need more social workers, nursing staff, and so on that have specific training in psychiatry or in in mental health management. Um, That's a level of care that we need. And then um, for some reason in psychiatry, we're one of the last specialties on board to utilize, you know, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, you know, what we, what we call mid-level or, um, you know, their own licensed practitioners who have different sort of training and making sure that they're trained to manage psychiatric uh, issues and mental health issues with supervision from, you know, fully trained psychiatrists. So I think looking at, you know, the setting where we provide care, but also the, the personnel and the, the training of, the, of clinicians to try and, you know, bring more individuals to help out. Yeah, I, yeah, that, that really sounds like a perfect situation. I mean, just you talking about it made me feel calm. I was like, oh, <laughs> I remember hearing I was at a meeting and they were talking, this was adult ERs, but I want to say that's in Tucson. I can't remember the name, but it was essentially you would come in and, and again, this was for adults. You would come in, there would be comfortable chairs. Um, there was a psychiatric um, provider there you would kind of come in, you would, you know, till you felt better, have a snack and just sort of chill. And then from there, you know, you would go to another door, which would be that transition of care. And and so, you know, you would get everything kind of coordinated there. Lois, you mentioned earlier that you service New England and a bigger area. Do you do that via telepsych? I mean, is there a role for telehealth? There's absolutely a role for telehealth. I mean, the kids obviously in the emergency department, they physically, you know, come in. But I, I think that is sort of the space that we need to really advocate for true parity, right? That mental health is a disorder, just like asthma, like cancer. You know, a child with cancer, you would never make them wait a week to start chemotherapy. A child with a new diagnosis of diabetes, you'd never make them wait a week to start their insulin. I think we have to realize that you know, having a mental health disorder is just a different kind of disease and that there's evidence-based treatment and that it is actually inhumane to deny a child or an adult that treatment, that when that disorder or disease process has been identified, then we need to institute the evidence-based treatment. So Colorado has, you know, 
um, actually passed legislation that's really committed to providing mental health services for every child who, who needs them. Um, and they're building up those services that I think telehealth, especially, right, again, a state like Colorado, even a state like Massachusetts, the kids who live three hours away in the western part of the state, yes, we're thankful we have hospitals in the middle and the western part, but again, depending on the child, even an hour drive, right, may make something completely inaccessible as far as getting the mental health care they need, either acutely or more chronically. So I think telehealth is a really important way to improve access, but we also then need to make sure that the providers, whether or not they're advanced practice practitioners like NPs, PAs, as well as you know physicians and licensed social workers, that they are paid with the same parity, right, as if you are seeing uh, a child for or, or even an adult for a sort of physical medical complaint. How do you build the workforce? And, you know, it's like with teachers, you know, we should be paying these people a whole lot more than we do. I mean, I think it's in Finland where teachers and mental health professionals are paid like lawyers and doctors. However, I would say pediatricians are not high up on the doctor pay scale. I'm not complaining, but it, you know, when you look at it, so I'm thinking in my head, you know, these child psychiatry access programs, which almost all 50 states have, I think there's three or four states that are still lagging behind. But so these are, you know, these services where I can call in Usually during the daytime, I can talk with a psychiatrist. They kind of walk me through. I, I think of it as like hand-holding or a curbside consult. So this telepsych would actually be the psychiatrist seeing the patient via tele. So my question is, and, and this one may be for you, Ben, is what about capacity? I mean, do we have, we don't have enough child psychiatrists as is. Right. Is there a way to do this different, smarter? Um, I feel like some psychiatrists could easily get tied up with mild to moderate anxiety, depression that honestly, I think primary care can do. If we free up psychiatrists, is this something we can do differently? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think we need more of it, um, more outreach. And, you know, when I was a medical student back the late nineties, the psychiatry clinic where I, you know, did med school at the University of Kansas, had some telepsychiatry, and it was like this brand new novel thing. And my background, um, I went to graduate school in communication prior to going to medical school. So they always wanted my input. And, you know, is it, does this seem like it's, we're meeting with them in person and so on. And I think we need to do more of it. We do it in other areas of medicine, but again, you know, psychiatry oftentimes lags behind you know, because we're talking about managing people in emergency rooms, but, and I'm thinking, you know, what do we do to keep them out of the emergency room? So what are we doing beforehand? And how are we, you know, getting to patients beforehand? And one of the positive things, if there was anything that I think came out of the pandemic was we really learned how to use social media. Like we learned about Zoom and we learned about teleconferencing and the kind of stuff where, you know, the, we avoided it because the equipment would always break down and, you know, never worked in terms of remote settings. But now the technology is, is pretty on point. So, you know, we have the technology to do it. And I think just finding ways to, for doctors to literally have remote clinics, as opposed to just um, providing consultation or answering questions over the phone, but actually, you know, I could have a clinic in another part of the state and be in Ann Arbor, but, you know, see my patients in an outpatient clinics. And so I think more, more is better in that sense. Yeah. Any thoughts from you, Lois? Yeah, I think that's important. And also just making sure, you know, that, that there can be cross-state uh, licensing, mm -hmm. because again, if you're a child in Wyoming, for example, there just may not be enough, you know, child mental health providers, but you could do a telehealth visit with somebody in Colorado. But the way the state laws are set up right now, it's very hard to do that. And for the Colorado um, practitioner to be paid for their for their services. So um, I think that's, that's going to be one barrier. So a big barrier, obviously, just the workforce, then obviously, how do we work around licensing um, and payment for services? Yeah, yeah there's got to be some incentives. I think that there's some legislation in the works to help 
people that go into medical subspecialties defray some costs. Um, I think the American Academy of Pediatrics was, was advocating for. So I don't know that psychiatry really counts as a subspecialty or does it? I see you shaking your head, Lois. Yeah, they are included in that group. So it's the pediatric subspecialty loan repayment program. However, yeah. it has only received $5 million of funding. So there will only be, uh, I think, 30 slots available. So right now, very limited, but they, you know, do encourage people to apply because they, then we can show that there's a need that we will need to fund more, more spots. Um, but definitely it's not just actually MDs who are then included for that part um, because it's pediatric loan subspecialty. So if you do mental health for pediatrics, but from a different, um, you know, uh, educational background, I believe you can still apply. Mm-hmm. But those sorts of things are, will be critical to try to increase the workforce uh, on different, many different levels. I think a lot of people out there don't realize that oftentimes um, residents are coming out with $100,000, $250,000 loans. And so, I mean, it's kind of shocking that you could only get 30 slots out of that big chunk of change and how much it, it's costing. And yet people are still going to medical school because people want to serve. There was something else that, well, two things. One is, I don't know if you guys have heard of this. Um, it, it, I think it's a software kind of thing. It's called Jasper. Zero Suicide Institute in uh, DC is partnering with this group. And it's essentially safety planning and doing assessments all in an iPad. So I think about like folks in our ERs, you know, they're just sitting they don't have anything to do, maybe watch TV, but, but it's an interactive, so they can do the risk assessment questions on the iPad gets loaded up. So the social worker, it saves time on their end. They have the information and can then do the assessment, but also while they're waiting, it has um, videos from people who are attempt survivors talking about why, you know, they're doing, you know, why they're happy they're still alive. There's distraction games. There's, it's, it's a very cool thing. I, I saw a demo and they're working on an adolescent version. And I think it could be really helpful both for the patient, but also for the ED side to do some of the, and, you know, people like doing questionnaires online. So I, I didn't know if you'd heard about that. I haven't heard about that specifically, but I think it's a great tool. You know, any sort of brief intervention and referral to treatment. So we have, uh, in, you know, in substance abuse, there's the whole expert model where, you know, we learn how to ask the questions to engage the patient and then, you know, a referral to treatment or a brief intervention. And I think we need, um, I think there's a lot more work that we can do in mental health and in psychiatry to, you know, engage patients in a quicker way, kind of a standardized way, sort of get them connected to treatment. You know, the problem is treatment isn't always available, but we also don't really, I think we can refine the process of referring people. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking in my head, so I don't know if either of you were familiar, but the AAP during the pandemic put out these COVID, COVID-19 interim guidance. So and they were reviewed every 30 days. So, you know, what's the masking recommendations? What about hand washing? What's going on with vaccines? And they would come out and, and I can't remember how many of them there are. There, there were more than 20 for sure. And it was a way to like do immediate action because I'm thinking, so the AAP and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry came out with a declaration that mental health was a national crisis. And that was in October. And then the Surgeon General followed with a statement. And now there's been lots of media about what's going on. So New York Times had an, an article about, you know, suicidal teens are spending nights in the emergency room. You know, it's on 60 minutes. So what about like, because I'm thinking about, you know, these things that we could do, they're going to take a lot of time. So what do we do now? I mean, is there an opportunity to get super creative and do something? Because we do know that there are things that work, right? Any, any thoughts on, you know, like, what can we do so that we don't have to wait for, you know, two years to develop something? Lois, you look like you're thinking. Yeah, I, I'll need a moment because all these solutions, they will, you know, take time. Yeah. yeah. 
You know, I'm, I'm just looking at some of the latest things we've done at our centers. You know, we've got the psychiatric ER, and of course, we serve all the adults as well. Um, and so it's, like I said before, it's not the most inviting place. Um, and so our pediatric ER docs were often, as much as they wanted to, sometimes hesitant to send families across the hospital to our ER. And so we're bringing more um, psychiatric consultation to the medical ER. Um, and we've hired some APPs to you know, be first line and are staffing them with our psychiatric faculty. Um, so, you know, trying to bring more interventions to the ER, bring personnel. Um, and, you know, I think we were sort of hinting at um, the idea of recruiting people into our specialty. And I think, you know, how do we do that? How do we make our jobs appealing to medical students and have loan repayment programs and, look at compensation models. You know, we've been talking about parity forever, but, you know, um, one of the things I've had to learn as a psychiatrist is advocacy. You know, how do I get insurance companies to pay what they should pay? And how do we get inpatient stays covered? And how do people get compensation? You know, many people coming out of psychiatric residencies are drawn to private practice because they don't have to deal with insurance companies there are enough psychiatric patients out there that they can sort of get people who can afford to pay for their services. And so there's a disincentive to go into public health or university hospitals and that sort of thing. So I think looking at that, I mean, it's a larger problem, but the time is now to begin to talk about these things. I've always said mental health isn't, isn't sexy. It's kind of, you know, messy, Really? And, and how do you, I mean, to me, I find this the most interesting thing that I've done. I mean, you know, I can do ear infections and strep throat, but you know, a depressed teen that needs my help is just so much more fulfilling for me. But I I'm thinking in my head, you know, we called forward these frontline workers. I mean, there were people that stepped up pediatric people doing adult medicine, you know, to help with COVID. I mean, is it time that we call people and say, you know, I'm like, well, heck, I'd do a shift in the ER every once in a while to do some assessment. I mean, is there an opportunity to do something now? I mean, is there a place for, you know, what are we doing when we've got 20 or 30 kids sitting in an emergency room, getting very little care? So I think the solution is to actually try to um, intervene before the child or family comes to the emergency department. There, there will always be children who will need the emergency department, right? But, but there are patients in your practice who you know who are at risk for, for whatever reason. So I think, not to put it back on the pediatricians, but um, right, having those programs for pediatricians who really are the ones, you know, who know their patients, who may know who might be at risk to be able to manage those or manage those patients, you know, with expert consultation, if you can have a social worker, and that, that's a model that we have developed and studied well in Massachusetts, um, really embedding kind of stepped tiers of mental health care uh, within our primary care practices. And with that, um, you know, before the pandemic, they were seeing uh, sort of decreased rates of emergency use. So on the shorter term, I think there can be some education done for primary care practices. Uh, family practices to try to engage with their at-risk patients on some level, uh, while longer-term, you know, solutions are are being worked on, including, you know, the federal government rolling out the suicide uh, 988, um, you know, number, which hopefully will come with, you know, additional resources for uh, acute care, um, you know, access in the form of maybe mobile crisis units or something like that. Yeah, the, the integrated behavioral health model, I mean, honestly, as I said earlier, it was a game changer. I mean, right. honestly, once I had a social worker in my office, I did not send a single kid to the emergency room for over two years because right. they could do the work. Now, again, these are not, this is not somebody that's coming in that's made an attempt right then and there. Those kids were going to the emergency room anyway. But I mean, and this is, you know, emergency room and inpatient psych care is so expensive 
I mean, I would think that payers are looking at how do we do this cheaper? Ben, you look like you had a thought. Yeah, I, you know, one thing as I'm, as we're just, as we're sitting here talking, ideas are coming to my head. And I think knowledge about how to access resources is sometimes missing and even knowledge of what resources are available in the community. So I'll give you an example. We had a young lady um, who was in our, she was boarding with us for over a week and it really was less psychiatric and more behavioral. You know, she was having conflicts with her parents, you know, making some homicidal threats. And, you know, nobody really thought this child was going to kill her parents. But, you know, the police were called to the house. They brought her in, you know, and the, the family was in conflict. And I made some phone calls and I found a crisis, short-term crisis residential house that served at-risk kids, you know, and they were like, you know, can you put her on the phone? I'll talk to her and her dad. And they had a bed, you know, so I never knew that that place existed. It was in another county, but they were willing to take a kid from our county. So, you know, what sort of other models are out there that we can access and refer to? And do we really, you know, so creating lists and creating data databases of community resources that we might not know about, um, I think is a, is important. And that might be the purview of social work, for example, you know, who are experts at accessing resources. Um, but just knowing that they're available, I think it can be a game changer. I mean, we've been on, we've been on this podcast for less than an hour. We've already come up with a whole bunch of interventions. We could fix this, right? Give us some money, <laughs> big grant. <laughs> Well, I, I, you know, again, there's just so much to do. And I think the advocacy piece is huge. I mean, this is an opportunity for federal funding, state funding to go into what works, you know, how do we expand care using creative, you know, the, the telemodel or other models, what are like those partial programs urgent care, some other things that are getting away from the traditional. And I'm going to do a podcast here in a couple of weeks just on um, mental health financing and how you can do it in private practice, because you can pay to have a social worker. I mean, you can, you know, be cost neutral or even have it be make money to provide behavioral health services if you get creative about how you do it. So it's not that they're not solutions. I think we just right now are just in, you know, we're so overwhelmed and feeling stuck. So, well, you guys have been so great. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of opportunity. I think the nicest thing is, is this kind of collaboration. I mean, we need our psychiatry friends, right. Um, And primary care emergency rooms. I mean, I think it helps for us to call the emergency room and say, Hey, I've got a kid, you know, this is a kid I've known for you know, years, and this is something really different. And if you on the receiving end, hear that information. And then likewise, if a kid's going home for somebody to call and say, Hey, Leah, I've got a kid that's, you know, been in our ER, we're sending him home. This is, these are the things we're recommending. Could you see them in the office in a few days? You know, if we can do more of that coordination care, are there any, you know, just in closing, are there any pearls, tips, words of wisdom that you guys can leave listeners with? I would just say, you know, I so appreciate my pediatric colleagues who are willing to go out of their comfort zone a little bit and and willing to manage, you know, if I make recommendations for medication, for example, who are willing to keep these kids in their practice and willing to, you know, take guidance and kind of expand the network. It's disconcerting sometimes when primary care doctors just sort of punt so it's, you know, it's the only word I can think of. We won't deal with this at all. So you, you manage it. And I really think we need to be collaborative and cooperative and, um, and work together um, look more than we do in some cases. How about you, Lois? I'll give you the last word. Well, I really, my last word is just to express my appreciation for my mental health colleagues at Boston Children's, but also, you know, people I don't know around, around the country doing really really hard work. And I I think it's hard to see these kids in crisis every single day and know that you're not providing the level of care, the optimal kind of care that you would like to. Um, And so I think perseverance, and then as Dr. Bierman has said multiple times, advocacy, right? Patient advocacy, advocating at your hospital to provide better services, advocating at the state and federal level um, to try to improve care. Uh, And so, yeah, 
thank you, but there's a lot more work that, you know, all of us should be doing together. Yeah, I, I think you hit on a couple things, collaboration, coordination. Um, you know, I think primary care can step up and do, and I, I do think that, you know, I certainly I've been trying to do primary care training for a long time and we do it with our child psychiatry access program here. We do a suicide prevention training. I think there historically has been kind of like, this isn't my job, but with suicide being the second leading cause of death in our kids and gun violence being the first, it is our job. I mean, kids are dying and this is our job. I mean, it just can't be now we shouldn't have to do it alone. And that's where, you know, folks like, you know, um, our child psychiatry folks like Ben, um, you know, mental health, social work, you know, it, it has to be a team sport in order for us to do this well. So, you know, I so appreciate what you guys do. I appreciate the, um, research that you're doing because I think we have to have those numbers, um, to get dollars, you know, and I think the other thing for, you know, the funding piece of it on the primary care side is if I tie up an hour of my time taking care of a kid with depression and suicidal ideation, you know, and on the other hand, I could see six kids with ear infections, you know, the payment for those, it's not a break even. So how do we, how do we do this? How do we recognize value that work? Because it is that important. So, well, thanks so much to you both and, and keep doing the great work that you're doing out there. Yeah. And thanks for doing the podcast. This is such important. This is such an important message. Thank you. All right. Highlighting this problem and the solutions is really the way that we're hopefully going to get to a better place. Every little bit helps. Well, take care, you guys. And, and again, thank you. I love this conversation because even though this situation that we are facing with the youth mental health crisis right now is daunting. There is such an opportunity for creativity and innovation. And with the kind of clinicians that we interviewed today, there is such an opportunity to really write a new plan. So here are my takeaways. Number one, First of all, of course, a huge thank you to Dr. Beerman and Dr. Lee for the amazing work that they do and really for their collaborative nature, which is so important. Number two, our kids are not doing well emotionally. They are in crisis and we hear about it everywhere. This looks like increased distress and despair. Number three, access to mental health care is in short supply. We all know that. Kids are funneling into services such as they are through the primary care practices, emergency rooms, schools, and tragically, some are not getting help. Number four, this one is always sobering. Suicide remains the second leading cause of death in youth. And for girls and black youth, especially males, the numbers are rising for attempts and completions. Number five. The emergency rooms are overrun with kids waiting, boarding for help. The standard definition for boarding is more than four hours of wait time, but for many, the wait is days, even weeks. Number six, the pandemic magnified the mental health crisis. It was there before, and we all knew it. We've all been saying it. We just weren't hearing about it in the media, and it wasn't getting the attention that was necessary. Now we hear about it all the time and everywhere. Number seven, for underserved, minoritized, and poor youth, the access to services is even more challenging. Number eight, when a kid hits the emergency department with, with mental health concerns, what happens next depends on where the ED is located. Is it rural and remote? Is it urban? Is it an academic, tertiary, quaternary center? For attempts, medical clearance is the first order of things. Is the patient stable is the first thing that needs to be determined. Number nine, if they are medically cleared, an assessment of risk, intent, access to mean follows if there's been suicidal ideation. Dr. Behrman said we need to take it a step further. We need to know what happened before the attempt. So what's the context? Number 10. When psychiatry support is available, ED intervention is more likely to happen. Meds can be started or tweaked. There can be behavioral interventions. 
There may be connections to resources that wouldn't have otherwise have occurred. And this collaboration with psychiatry and pediatric emergency medicine builds confidence and relationships. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's always about relationships. Our rural and remote EDs are really stressed, and they are the least likely to have resources. We just have to demand change. And unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of suicide attempts and suicide completions in rural regions amongst our youth. So we we need to remember that this problem is happening everywhere. Number 11. Ultimately, the question is disposition. Is the patient safe to go home? Should they go to a medical floor? Outpatient partial treatment? Inpatient psychiatric treatment? But where? Number 12. Empower and educate primary care pediatricians and clinicians on the front end of prevention and on the back end for coordination of care. We have the ability to be the first line of attention. We have the skills and it really is our responsibility to address this because this is killing our kids. Number 13, let's think outside the box for the acute needs of kids in crisis. Perhaps we could explore psychiatric urgent cares and of course telepsychiatry for remote regions or regions underserved by psychiatry. We would need cross-state licensing to cover states with very few child psychiatrists. There was an example on 60 Minutes that aired on May 8th about um, a center in Wisconsin that had a walk-in 3 to 9 p.m., seven days a week, and it was the first of its kind. It's brilliant. Number 14, a barrier to change might be workforce. Who can we bring into the field? And are there incentives for psychiatric residencies, nurse practitioners, PAs, social workers, and psychologists who are interested in doing this work? Number 15, let's go upstream and think about prevention. It's what we do best. Screening, brief interventions in the primary care setting, Integrated behavioral health. I know you hear me say it all the time, but this is where it's at. I have an upcoming episode on financing mental health care, and I'll be talking with a manager of a pediatric practice where they are more than breaking even on bringing mental health providers into their practice. So it can be done. Here we lean on our primary care partners, but we need time and payment to do the work. We, we cannot do this on the fly, and it needs to be valued. Number 16, Dr. Lee made a profound statement. It is inhumane to deny care. Consider not offering care for a child who was just diagnosed with cancer or diabetes. It just wouldn't happen. And yet the condition that is killing our kids goes without treatment. I mean, it makes no sense. We keep saying it and saying it, but we have to have the will to make a difference. Number 17. So what do we do? Advocate for funding for expanded mental health, early relational health, Stay tuned for an upcoming conversation with Dr. Heather Forkey on this topic. Perinatal mood and anxiety disorders so that we can get those mamas early and that way they can support their babies. Early intervention services, school-based mental health, community-based mental health, psychiatric and mental health urgent cares, and expanded and supported and funded child psychiatry access programs. Number 18, both guests acknowledge the incredible power of partnerships, the emergency room physicians, primary care partners, psychiatric partners, social work, psychologists, nursing. This is the ultimate in care and the, t- and the time to demand it is now. Number 19, check out the show notes for links to recent articles the AAP and American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Declaration, and stay tuned for an upcoming AAP policy statement and technical report on this topic. This is so important, and each of us has a role to play in taking care of kids, their whole self, their mental health, their emotional well-being, the whole thing, and we cannot let them die.
Thank you so much for everything you do for kids. We have the skills to make change. We just have to have the will. I hope you'll join me next week for another episode. And as always, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown, on Twitter at Leah Gugino, and on Facebook. You can search for me under Dr. Leah Gugino. Thanks so much and so appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.